Welcome to the Friday subscribers only edition of the Hub Dialogues, the podcast of the Hub, Canada's leading source for insight and analysis into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. On these special Friday only broadcasts, we're going to be convening Sean Spear, our editor at large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor in chief, for a conversation with me, Rudyard Griffiths about the big stories and issues that have animated the public conversation over the last seven days. Our goal is to leave you with some new analysis and insights and hopefully some new perspectives on the big issues of our time. So pull up a chair right now and join Sean Spear, Stuart Thompson, and myself for the Friday subscriber-only edition of the Hub Dialogues. Sean, Stuart, great to have you both here on our regular Friday roundtable. Hey, good to be here. Yeah, hey, guys. Two parts to this show today. We're going to talk about the federal budget off the top. I want to get your thoughts uh, on the fiscal picture, but also let's talk about uh, defense uh, spending in the, in the context of uh, a worsening war in the Ukraine this week, and also housing, which has been something we've been covering a lot at the Hub and the budget, uh, again, has some some thinking on housing. Uh, the second half of the show, uh, let's do what we usually do on Fridays, guys, which is dig into the latest on the conservative leadership race. Uh, Stuart had a great uh, summary today, our regular Friday roundup on the Hub, uh, looking at all the latest developments in the race to be the next leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. Sean, I'm going to begin with you on the budget. Um, you had, a, I thought, a piece this morning, Friday, that was super helpful to me just to understand uh, maybe some of the bigger assumptions in this budget and also maybe as a result of unpacking some of those assumptions, the kind of fiscal challenges that remain for Canada. So just give us a, a quick 411 off the top and then we'll <laughs> dig deeper into um, this, I think, kind of gloomy frankly if you want to be honest about it fiscal picture that the country now faces yeah just big picture uh Rudyard and stewart uh, the prevailing narrative coming out of yesterday's budget um is that the government is exercising greater restraint it was characterized as prudent and responsible and even very modest by some members of the press gallery and i mean i suppose if you're grading against a pretty forgiving curve um, that's the right way to think about this, that the spending growth over the next few years under this budget is, is less ambitious than we've seen in the context of the pandemic, of course, but even um, in the years prior. Um, but I, I would just make a couple of quick points. First of all, um, spending growth um, between now and the end of the fiscal period covering the budget is something like uh, 2 and 2, 2.2% annually. That's a, a level of, of relative restraint that this government has never exercised. In fact, in the first five years, annual spending growth was 6.4%. So more than double uh, what it now is telling us is going to become the, the new normal. And then just a second thing quickly, um, we've talked on previous episodes about the Liberal NDP parliamentary agreement. What's interesting, guys, is in yesterday's budget, uh, well, the government nodded uh, to the commitment around dental benefits, it was mostly silent on pharmacare and long-term care, which are two really big ticket items. Listeners should remember that that agreement isn't a one-year one agreement. It extends out until 2025. And so assuming that pharmacare and long-term care are coming 
um, down the pipe, um, it only reinforces that the relative restraint exercised uh, yesterday um, is probably not for the long haul. So that's a long way of saying, um, you know, if we want to give the government a grade uh, on on just on a single day, you might be prepared to give it a, a B or a C. Um, but given what we know is coming, uh, it seems to me um, that this was a, a less prudent and responsible and very modest budget um, than it's being characterized in Ottawa. Fascinating, uh, Sean. Um, I'm going to come to you, Stuart, with your reaction. I, I just would encourage uh, listeners, take a look at chart 28 in the budget. Um, I want your guys to react to this. It's interesting to see because, you know, these are, as we know, highly political documents. And here you have a chart showing the average potential annual growth in real GDP per capita. It selected OECD countries 2020 to 2060. Canada is dead last. So, you know, under 1% per capita GDP, real GDP growth. So fascinating to me that the government would, would flag this so openly because in many ways, Stuart, this to me is a criticism of the economic policies of the last half decade that not only do we have low, low productivity growth uh, for the last five years, but we now have a projection from the OECD itself that we're last. And I don't think Canadians like being last. I don't think we like being, you know, 21st out of a peer group of peer countries in terms of per capita wealth going forward relative again to these peer jurisdictions. So what's up here, Stuart? I mean, it seems like an acknowledgement of some real problems with the Canadian economy, structural problems. What was in this budget to address it? And is it any way commensurate to the challenge that lies ahead? Yeah. I, so that chart, it was a similar chart in the Globe and Mail uh, a week or two ago, and it actually took my breath away. You just, when you s see the chart of Canada in last place, it just hits you in the gut. And I think you're right. That is, that's a particularly bad situation. We can talk about growth and, you know, revenues and expenditures and all this stuff, but um, there's something particularly damning about that. And I just will note, I mean, I wasn't in the budget lockup yesterday. Um, so you, you sometimes miss a little bit of something, but I can, reading some of the stuff that came out of that in the newspapers and the media organizations, there was a senior government source going around talking about this exact thing. Um, you can read it in the National Post story on uh, growth. They were saying, look, we have really bad medium term prospects on growth. We're in last place. And they were actually saying all this stuff. And um, one thing that you know uh, about the budget and one thing you know about the things people say in the budget lockup to reporters, it's not accidental. Like all this stuff has a political plan. So um, either they're priming people um, for this kind of stuff um, to be moving on it or just kind of getting the problem out there so they can tackle it. Um, and they have done some things on growth. And this is one of those things that you have to evaluate as it goes. We've all heard of super clusters before. We haven't seen a lot of super clusters. Yeah, so it didn't work so well. <laughs> so let's, <laughs> let's keep that in mind. But there is 15 billion for uh, what they're calling the Canada Growth Fund. Um, this kind of stuff, it could work great. We don't know. Um, but the fact that the government is paying attention to it, it's kind of, I'm teaching my daughter how to ride her bike right now. And if she gets out there and she tries and she doesn't cry, 
and she's brave. I'm happy. And that's how I feel about this government on growth. They got out oh, there. Okay, there were no tears. <laughs> they did their best. The uh, so in the early stages, let's just say at least they're thinking about it because for the last however many years, seven years, they haven't said a word about it. But Sean, I got to come to you on this because you've written and thought a lot on this, especially on per capita GDP as a really important metric, um, much more important in a way than nominal GDP to, to understand our relative economic performance and wealth vis-a-vis, um, -vis, you know, peer countries. Um, so what's what's your take here? I mean, my, my feeling was that it's bizarre to flag this problem in what is a political document. And then frankly, to do so little, to revert to the usual playbook of, well, let's create a fund for, you know, um, the Morgan Stanleys and BlackRock's of this world to pitch innov innovation products, you know, to the Canadian government versus, I don't know, like something actually transformative, like removing interprovincial trade barriers, like creating an IP strategy that's actually attuned to the dynamics and opportunities of the 21st century. So what's really going on here further to Stuart's point is this, is this putting down a marker vis-a-vis uh, -vis the NDP and the pressures that you just identified off the top of the show, Sean, in terms of these bigger ticket items uh, like pharmacare? basically saying, guys, until productivity and per capita GDP is headed in the right direction, these things are effectively outside of our fiscal capacity. Oh, that, that's a really interesting point. I think there's probably something to that. Um, the other thing I would say, though, is that this government is trying to make the case that we ought to reconceptualize how we think about government policy when it comes to growth. So instead of talking about those conventional levers that you mentioned, Rudyard, regulations, intellectual property, taxation, and so on, they're trying to make the case that social spending, childcare funding, and, and these sorts of things are actually um, the, the way we ought to be supporting economic growth. In the budget yesterday, in the budget speech yesterday, for instance, Christia Freeland cited Janet Yellen um, on this point that we need a progressive people centric um, uh, agenda for uh, higher rates of economic growth. It seems to me that's kind of what we've been doing over the past several years, though. And as you say, Rudyard, not only the real GDP per capita projections, um, which you mentioned, but also just the real GDP growth projections are um, hovering um, on or below 2% over much of uh, the period covered by the budget. So um, if uh, the, this kind of progressive social spending approach to growth was working, ostensibly we'd be moving in a, in a different direction. Uh, so I, I, that's a long way of saying, I, at a kind of fundamental level, uh, the, the government may increasingly understand the nature of the problem, but doesn't seem to have uh, the, the right set of, of policies or even the right way to think about how we start to push up against uh, what we've written about at the hub as the 2% trap holding our economy back. Okay, let's talk uh, housing and uh, defense. I thought <laughs> it's so Canadian. So we got our priorities straight. Eight billion on defense, 10 billion on housing. Come on, you know, uh, it's butter, not guns, as uh, Sean said last week in terms of the Canadian um, mentality here on spending. Um, Stuart, what did you take out of these two announcements? Let's start with defense first. You know, someone did a back of the envelope converse, uh, calculation for me, and they said that the increased uh, Eight billion over five years would add uh, would take us from you know one point four 
1.5% of GDP to 1.6. So still well short of the two and a very small incremental change, not even accounting for all the procurement hassles. Uh, we're not great at procuring new kit in Canada. Um, so is this, uh, what, what's going on here in the context of defense spending? Is this meaningful or not? Um, yeah, it, so I think probably what's happening here, and we should always in defense um, remember that budgeting something doesn't necessarily mean they're going to spend it. Um, and I think the government knows that. Um, so they could be ramping up to doing that. What I think is probably more likely here is that we're in a moment right now where defense is on everyone's minds. The government, I don't think, is temperamentally hugely concerned about getting to 2%. I think it's something they realize is a political issue right now. Um, so what I suspect is they'll kind of rag the puck on this. They'll probably make movements towards that. But um, when it comes down to budgeting, you are choosing your priorities um, politically, and um, these are opportunity costs. So I, I think if it really comes down to it, defense isn't going to make it against some bigger priority of the liberal government. Um, and I think we'll probably see these incremental steps where they can say they're making progress, um, but really they're not going to get too much closer to the 2%. Sean, let's talk housing. Um, you know, a whole bunch of stuff thrown in here, most notably the ban on foreign buyers. I, I, I find this always kind of interesting that there's that, you know, kind of blame, blame the foreigner, right? Like everyone knows the reason housing went up 41% in the last year across the country, which is again, just a terrifying um, rate of change um, is because of ultra low interest rates because of quantitative easing on the Bank of Canada. If you want to solve housing, do what the US Federal Reserve is going to do and you know move up the overnight borrowing rate from banks from 25 basis points to 300 basis points by the end of the year. And I guarantee you housing will be 41% cheaper a year from now. So all this just seems to me weirdly selective reasoning. Like People are saying, well, you know, we're going to build a few more houses. We're going to ban foreign buyers. When the 850-pound gorilla in the room is the central bank and what it did during this pandemic, which was outsized and might you say relevant for the immediate crisis. But I think we all acknowledge, and at least in the United States, there's a healthier debate than here in Canada, that we kept rates way too low for way too long. And one of the realities of that, the cost that we're gonna pay is a hugely inflated housing sector. One of the biggest asset bubbles arguably in the world. Yeah, I'm glad you raised interest rates, uh, Rudyard, because of course that's the most powerful tool in the federal toolkit for addressing um, our housing affordability challenges. Uh, much of what we saw yesterday um, with the exception of the, the, the uh, foreign buyers ban, which I'll come back to in a, in a second, um, are actually going to have the effect of pushing up demand, right? Uh, more support for first-time home buyers, more help for those saving uh, for a down payment. I mean, if, if the fundamental issue here is a, is a disequilibrium between supply and demand, juicing demand uh, seems like it's going to make the problem worse, not better. On the, the foreign buyers ban, you know, it seems to me this is another case of something approaching cognitive dissonance. The government is um, massively increasing our immigration targets over the next three years on one hand, and on the other hand, placing restrictions on uh, foreign, foreign buyers. You know, how, uh, on one hand, uh, much higher immigration rates will have no impact on housing, and on the other hand, we need to ban foreign buyers, as I say, reflects a kind of cognitive dissonance um, 
that uh, that too often it seems to me bedevils a federal government's not just this one, um, but successive ones when it comes to the housing file. Stuart, what's what was your take on the housing announcement? It just it does seem like, uh, and again, I we get it. These are political documents um, to expect, you know, deep economic perspicacity <laughs> part of any government in any budget document is to go too far, but this does seem awfully cosmetic in the context of, and we know this at the hub, because we get these emails, we have this correspondence with our, with our readers who are millennials. There's a, a growing sense of like generational despair that is setting in, in this country amongst younger age cohorts who feel that they simply have no path to to property ownership, to home ownership, to some of the prerequisites culturally that we've had for a long time in terms of family formation. And boy, um, you know, what's in this budget that actually gets at those big generational aspirations and anxieties? Yeah, it is a little bit like the growth issue where they've done a few things that are smart, um, but the problem is so big that that transformational um, solution just doesn't seem to be there. Um, the one thing they did note in the budget, it says to make housing more affordable, more housing needs to be built. That's a very obvious statement that I wish that the federal government would make more. Um, they launched the new housing accelerator fund, which is meant to push cities to build more housing um, where there's kind of political issues for cities and you know, annoying their residents who don't want things built. Um, but these are small scale um, solutions. It's not really in the federal government's jurisdiction. My sense is, especially with the progressive government, there's not a lot of solutions that work and are politically um, viable for them. So um, if there's not a lot of harm done in, in this budget, I think that's probably a win just based on the situation. And I just connect the dots for a second though, Rudyard, for listeners on the, your first question about uh, the poor uh, projections with respect to per capita GDP and now this housing issue. I think I think in some ways these issues are connected. They reflect what something you mentioned, Rudyard, which is this general sense um, that the normal ways in which we thought about middle class progress are under threat. Home ownership, you know, entering a labor market where there's real opportunity instead of gig work, um, you know, student debt, delayed family formation. I, you get the sense that there's something kind of below the surface occurring in our country um, that politicians haven't quite figured out, um, but that's really serious. It, 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 and it's captured in some of the polling we've done at the Hub, which tells us that a lot of people don't think their kids are going to have better lives than they do. And it, it seems to me that is ex uh, just toxic when it comes to the kind of political culture and the kind of social cohesion and all the rest. And you know, it's a, it's a, it seems to me there's not a bigger issue facing kind of our political class than getting their arms around that. And it's obviously something that we'll be um, thinking and writing a lot about at the Hub. But, you know, this budget um, missed the mark on addressing this kind of growing sense um, that, uh, that Canada, the Canadian dream is, um, is, is, is um, increasingly out of reach for a, a lot of um, younger people coming up. Thank you, Sean. That's excellent. Great segue to the second part of our discussion today, which will be the update we provide every week on the Conservative Party leadership race. And one candidate in particular, Sean, that is trying to do, in a sense, exactly what you outlined here, address the growing societal anxiety about 
people falling behind, particularly millennials, and that's uh, candidate Pierre Polyev. So let's have that conversation right after this break. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Thank you for listening to this, our Friday subscriber-only podcast. If you're enjoying this podcast and what The Hub is all about, providing insightful analysis and insights into the big issues and ideas facing Canada, all from a 100% Canadian perspective, please consider becoming a donor. You can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the button Donate, We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and a whole bunch of great benefits that come with being a hub donor. Again, you can do that right now at www.thehub.ca. Thank you in advance for your generous contribution. Now back to our program. Okay, we are back with our regular Friday Hub Roundup. This is our weekly program where we dig into some of the big issues and ideas making news with Sean Spear and... Stuart Thompson, our editor-at-large and editor-at-chief at The Hub. Guys, um, let's dig into the conservative leadership race. And Stuart, I want to talk with you first because you've done our weekly roundup that's available right now on our site. What was uh, the big development out of the campaign that um, Hub readers should follow and maybe understand is going to influence uh, the race in the weeks to come? Yeah, so the first big development we had this week is... Um... Leslie Lewis is the first person on the final ballot. Um, that's just interesting. It shows some organizational prowess on her uh, part, but you know it also shows that she sees some benefit in coming out and saying she's the first. So I suspect that if Pierre Polyev wanted to be on the final ballot right now, he could put some money into that, but instead he's campaigning around the country. He's going everywhere. Um, it's quite an interesting campaign too, because you know, in Ontario, we've been seeing these rallies of over a thousand people, at, you know, at a leadership contest. It's just something we don't normally see happening. Um, and I think, you know, you, you never know what these things, sometimes things bubble up when you're not expecting them to. And I, I wonder if something might be bubbling here. Sean, let me come to, to you. And I guess the questions are following, you know, you can tell that the poly campaign is really enjoying um, social media and the extent to which they're kind of framing these events and what's happening on the ground and the context of social media as this dynamic kind of insurgency uh, campaign against gatekeepers and elites. Is there a danger here, Sean, though, that, you know, like the Greek myth of Narcissus, you kind of fall in love with your own reflection and to what extent is this real? To what extent is all of the these carefully scripted clips and messaging that's bombarding my social media feed from the Polyev campaign, to what extent is this actually a movement at this point? Like, where where is your head at on on that that issue? No, it's a it's a great question um, because um, you know at the end of the day. Um, the key will be to translate that kind of enthusiasm into party memberships, um, and in turn, people voting and participating in the leadership race it, itself. You know, based on what we've seen so far, if the Polyev team can do that, if it can translate the energy enthusiasm around this race into actual votes, um, then it, you know, one would think that he should be able to to win this 
um, in a landslide. But as you know, Stewart's point about the Lewis campaign is really interesting. She has, um, you know, below the surface, this kind of powerful organization residing primarily in the world of social conservatism in general and the pro-life movement in particular. This is a kind of well-oiled machine. She has it without, she has a kind of monopoly on it because no other candidate um, reflects the, the kind of values and priorities of, of these voters. And so it's no surprise to me um, that she's out ahead in terms of, uh, of meeting all of the conditions to be a full candidate in this race. That's a long way of saying, it seems to me, um, on one hand, we have a candidate that's not um, generating a lot of buzz, but is doing the kind of heavy lifting of, uh, of, of on the ground organization. Another candidate who's generating a ton of buzz right now. And the, the question, of course, is, um, will that manifest itself in voters? I'm pretty confident it will, Rudyard. The team around Polyev is pretty strong. These aren't, um, you know, these aren't um, newbies. Um, but, you know, that, I guess that's the big question as we go into the membership cutoff um, in, early, in early June. Stuart, let's talk about the Shrey campaign a bit. You had a sense this week that there, there's the beginning here of a kind of policy agenda um, emerging from the Shrey campaign, uh, again, partly designed to set him off, to juxtapose against uh, Polyev and his more kind of enthusiastic embrace of the populist elements uh, within uh, Canadian conservative politics. Yeah, I found this really interesting because, you know, part of what we're trying to figure out here is what does this um, support for Polyev actually amount to? And uh, I don't think we know. And I think that's something we'll be tracking. Um, and it comes down to what what is the energy behind this sort of anti-pandemic restriction movement and where does that go? How effective is, is it politically? Is it just people who want to go out and vent and, you know, yell for a couple of hours? Um, or is this actually something politically useful? Um and interestingly, Shire is taking the other side of that. He had a policy come out this week um, saying he's going to make it a crime to block critical infrastructure. Um, some people may point out that it already is a crime. Sometimes the cops just don't enforce it as well as they should. And sometimes they feel like they have to get an injunction to do it. Um, but, you know, for example, in Ottawa, they they were well within their rights to clear that protest um, whenever they wanted to. It was more a matter of could they do it without terrible things happening when they did it. So um, the more uh, interesting to me is the political positioning here, where it, it seems directed at Pierre Polyev and his support for the trucker convoy. Um, and this is fascinating because the polling is not clear uh, on whether this is a great move by Charest or a terrible move, because depending on how you ask the question about support for the trucker convoy, you get wildly different answers. So conservatives are far more likely than the general population to say, they don't like to talk about it publicly, but they support a lot of what the truckers were saying. Something like 63% of past conservative voters feel that way. That's down in the mid thirties for most Canadians for the rest of the population. Um, so maybe Polyev is onto something, or maybe there's sort of this kind of quiet majority of conservatives who feel like, you know, the cops should be enforcing the law when things like this happen. And I, I think tracking this will tell us something. You know, Sean is, you know, as, as energetic as his rallies are, I mean, the reports of a thousand people gathering in Lindsay, Ontario, I mean, it's just remarkable. Um, is there a danger here again of the, of the poly of campaign getting caught up in that energy and, you know, projecting um, an attitude and a, a style that is pro-populist along with, you know, some rhetoric that might at the time 
absolutely resonate with those crowds like, you know, defund the CBC, cancel the CBC. But, you know, is catnip to liberal strategists thinking about, okay, well, let's let's build an ad around that, you know, for the for the federal election in three years. Um, you know, to what extent is is he now creating a public identity for himself and a set of policy prescriptions that will just alienate uh, the broad center, the mushy middle we know that is the Canadian electorate? I, I think that's a key insight. Um, I've always thought that the the success of the Harper formula was it had two components. The first was uh, conservative credibility with base conservative voters and a moderate temperament that uh, assuaged any concerns that um, suburban voters might have about a conservative agenda. That combination of a kind of inherent conservatism matched by a moderate disposition, I think really speaks to the success of the the, the, the Harper government, the so-called Harper formula. Um, and Polyev is testing that because not only does he have that conservative um, ingredient. He's also, he, he's, he's challenging the idea that you have to have a kind of moderate disposition or temperament to appeal to swing voters. And I, I think your instinct is right, uh, Rudyard. I think I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, Daryl Bricker had this kind of simple yet profound insight um, talking to me recently. He said, this is how Canadian elections are decided. It depends on any given election whether suburban voters have more in agreement with urban voters, in which case progressive parties win, or more in agreement with rural or uh, regional voters, in which case conservatives win, that suburban voters are the key swing voters in Canada. And I think Polyev is, is at risk, it seems to me, of kind of reading his own um, um, lines here so much that uh, he risks scaring off uh, those suburban voters. So, um, you know, I think it will require real discipline on the part of him and his team to continue to kind of speak to these issues without letting them come to um, sort of change or, or define him. Mm -hmm. Stuart, what's your take on that? I mean, is it possible? I mean, we, we've always poo-pooed this idea that, you know, that Canada could be susceptible to the meme, the, you know, the mental virus. And again, I'm using that pejoratively, but that's the language we've traditionally described populism as. Um, to, I had this subjective experience of the Polyev campaign as authentically populist, that they are they're projecting that uh, to me through social media feeds. A lot of the rhetoric seems to be in that vein. Um, it's not that he is Trumpian at all, but it has that aura around it. And I guess it's fascinating to watch because it's just it, it's an incredible gambit. Like. And I wonder if they're going to come to an inflection point where they kind of have to decide further to Sean's, I think, really accurate description of the secret sauce of the Harper years. Do you do you calibrate or not? Do you double down on this energy? And again, let's not discount it. A thousand people in Lindsay, Ontario. That to me suggests, wow, attempting attempting of Pierre Polyev here to say that this is real. I've got a movement and I'm going to go with it. Yeah, on the first point, I think Pierre Polyev will be looking towards the Liberal NDP deal and seeing three years of sort of parliamentary work ahead of him as the potential CPC leader. And that I think he will look to that as the time when he can, you know, become, you know, the, the leader that Canadians might want to see. I think that would probably be his plan um, to sort of moderate himself. I don't even think you need to moderate on the issues. I think Sean's 
100% correct that it's temperamental. And that might actually be worse for Polyev because just because of his public image, because of the way he likes to get into the partisan uh, bickering, it, it's going to be really interesting if he wins to see if he can actually do that. And on the populist side, there are, to me, two very distinct kinds of populism. One is you know, the dark side of the Trump uh, populism, which was about you know, a border wall and undocumented immigrants and sort of coded language around that. The second one is um, policy innovations that are not in the mainstream, but are relatively benign, something like free trade. You know, everybody loves free trade uh, in my world, all the journalists, all the policy people, but a lot of people who had jobs that they lost in the last 20 or 30 years hate free trade. Um, and they don't have anyone to vote for. So uh, that is also there with the, um, the vaccine mandates, the, the uh, measures on COVID. People were a little scared in the mainstream to come out against those things. And then someone comes along and does it. And it's a big populist moment. So one of those things is, I think, deeply irresponsible. One of those could actually be quite effective. Rudyard, can I just make one quick point for listeners, um, kind of looking ahead? We've spoken a lot about... Uh, Polyev and Sheree, we've even talked a bit about Leslie Lewis. I just want to put on people's radar one thing about the Patrick Brown campaign. Um, according to media reports, Brown is the only candidate yet to be approved uh, as a Tory leadership candidate by the party brass. Uh, we don't have any information about what's behind that, but I think it's probably, you know, if he's not approved soon, it'll be something that uh, gets increasing media scrutiny. What's the explanation? What's behind it? You know, I think that's something to continue to watch in the, in the next couple of weeks. Maybe there's something there that uh, that we don't we don't know about. If for some reason Brown isn't able to run, it it really um, disrupts the the, lead, the leadership landscape because you know as we've talked in previous weeks, the Shrey campaign is ostensibly depending on um, Brown voters on a second or third or, or or fourth ballot. So I just wanted to put that on people's radar. It's it's. It's, uh, I think, an, an interesting um, question at this stage, what's going on. Excellent, Sean. Great intel. Okay, so we're going to wrap up the program with you. Um, give us a tease. What, uh, what should we expect um, on, in our Monday edition of uh, The Hub? And what are some of the stories and topics that you're covering for next week? Yeah, we have, we have lots of reaction to the budget. Um, we'll be posting that today, but it'll be in our Monday newsletter if people are looking to just sort of get into the, the granular parts of this. I mean, if you want to get into housing, we've got two pieces on housing, short 200 word little dispatches on that. Um, and then lots of different reaction on all the different topics. Um, Monday, actually, I'm excited for because this was something um, I was chatting to Howard Anglin about. He had a theory years ago that all of our best leaders are becoming sports coaches instead of like generals and politicians these <laughs> days. And I, he tweeted it. And I remembered that like, that's such a great insight. So I have convinced him to write a piece for us on that. And it's coming out on Monday. So I hope you guys are excited nice. as I am. Okay. Terrific guys. Thanks for a great conversation. Have a fabulous weekend. And we'll be back again next Friday with our regular roundtable podcast. Again, we'll Keep at the conservative uh, leadership race and also uh, take a few deep dives on some of the issues, themes, and ideas that uh, we're covering in the Hub over the last seven days. So be well, and we'll talk to you then. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this special Friday edition of the Hub Dialogues for subscribers only. I hope you've enjoyed the program. If you have a comment or suggestion about the show, an issue, 
topic, an idea that you'd like us to cover on our regular Friday subscriber-only Hub Dialogues, please send us an email to info at thehub.ca. Also, check out our website, www.thehub.ca, for tons of great analysis and insights about the big issues and ideas shaping our world and Canada's future. While you're there, if you'd like to, consider becoming a donor. We'd love to have your support. Simply click on the donate button. We'll send you a charitable tax receipt and you'll get a whole series of great benefits and perks that come with being a hub donor. This edition and every edition of the Friday subscriber-only hub dialogues are produced by Ricky Gerwitz. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of the hub. Talk to you again next Friday. Bye-bye.